We will come to the time in our service now where we'll look at a passage of Scripture and talk about what it means for our lives, why it matters. If, you, uh, if English is not your first language, you should know we do have a manuscript available that you can grab. I see they've all been taken, so perhaps you've already got it. Uh, we're going to be speaking this morning, talking from 2 Samuel chapter 11. So if you would find that in your Bibles, if you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it is on page 221. And when you found that, would you stand together with me? 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you're able, stand and we'll read together from God's Word. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. This is simply referring to uh, uh, a cleansing that would have taken place. It was common among Israelite women after their menstrual cycle, basically saying she, she wasn't pregnant at this time. She had purified herself from her uncleanness, then she went back home. Verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark, that is the ark of the covenant, and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. He may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerebesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab sent him to say. 
The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open. We drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. Some of your translations will have displeased. It is meant to actually match the word at the end of verse 27. So don't let this displease you. The, word, the sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us now and ask God to be with us and speak to us by His Spirit. Oh Lord God, we come before Your Word now asking, as always, for You to speak through this Word to us. We believe this is not just an ancient record of things that happened, but a Word, a book inspired by Your Spirit to be written. And that same Spirit that lives, lives today and wants to speak to us through this Word. So I pray that your word would speak powerfully to each of us in just the way you intended it to be spoken, in just the way that you intended it to be heard. Open our hearts and our ears to receive it, O oh God, and be submissive to what you show us. And as I always ask, eternal God, now move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. I can't speak for any other countries, I don't know, but if you grew up in North America, went to school here, Chances are high that at some point in your schooling, you had to read William Golding's classic Nobel Prize winning novel, The Lord of the Flies. How many of you would say you've read this book? You've heard of this, seen the movie maybe? Okay. It's a story, if you don't know, about a group of private school boys who are stranded on a deserted island after the plane crashes. And as they wash up on shore, they realize none of the adults have survived. And so it's only these kids now must live and survive and rule themselves until they can be rescued. And if you've read this story, you've seen the movie, whatever, you know it, it goes pretty savage pretty quick. But along with being just a darkly captivating story, I think it's, this book is also a, a really interesting, just a profound psychological case study of what Golding is trying to say is true about human nature when it's removed from the constraints of societal structures, polite uh, laws and all kinds of things, what's really at the heart of us. I think what he's saying is at the heart, we're not good people. We're capable actually of unimaginable atrocities when we're removed from these societal structures. We're just simply constrained by them right now, so that's why we never act on them. But they dwell dormant in our hearts. Living in a post-Genesis 3 world where sin has entered into God's creation and infected and, and touched every part of God's creation, the Bible actually doesn't take a radically different view from Golding's. It would say that rather than societal structures, it's actually God's common grace to us that keeps the full force of evil from being unleashed on the world. But he would say at the same time, our hearts are, uh, as uh, Jeremiah says, desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And yet if you listen closely, neither Golding's view nor the Bible's view is the predominant message that you're going to hear today uh, when people just talk about the human heart, about the, the nature of humanity. 
Most will begrudgingly admit, okay, yes, there's some, sure, there's some bad apples out there that do bad things, but on the whole, people are, are generally good. We're good people, you know, we, we try to do our best. That, that, that's the general view you'll hear. Because so many of us hold that view, when we hear about bad apples doing bad things, most of us think, well, sure, that's what, that's what bad people do. And yet, almost none of us would be willing to admit that, that deep within the depths of our own heart, we would be capable of doing such things ourselves. No, no, no. We would say, no, no, that's, that's how bad people do things. That's how they think. That's how they behave. We're continuing in this series this morning called True Family Portrait, where we're looking at some of the most notorious sinners in the Bible who also happen to be very much a part of the family of God. One of the hopes in doing that is that we might just broaden our view of, of who it is that God can use, the kind of people he calls to himself and uses within his family. Another point of it would also be, though, to help us really just to shed, to do away with this sort of, I don't know where it came from, but this modern-day idea of the family of God as this cleaned up, all put together, no, no questions or anymore, no longer need of grace people but to embrace and acknowledge a true family portrait of who we are, a collection of misfits and outlaws, all still very much in need of the grace of God today. That's who we actually are. And all of that, along with Goldings and the Bible's view of the human heart, is going to be incredibly important for us this morning as we look at this story from the life of King David. Because when uh, toddlers have tantrums on the floor of the grocery store, nobody thinks that's odd. We just think, yeah, that's, that's the stage they're going through. Uh, uh, when clowns act like clowns, nobody thinks, well, why is that guy acting like such an idiot? We just we, we know that that's what clowns are. Even last week when we looked at Jacob, uh, when Jacob, the bad apple, acted like a bad apple, we didn't think that was weird. Yeah, that's, that's Jacob, the deceiver, okay. But most of us don't know what to do with a story like this today. When, when someone like King David, now come on, the shepherd boy hero over Goliath. David, uh, one of the, the greatest kings in all of Israel's history, the man after God's own heart. David, the writer of most of the book of Psalms, that guy. Him, he's one of the good apples, right? When he begins to act like a bad apple, most of us don't have any categories for that. And, and all of our apple categories that we have, they, they just get thrown into a tailspin. We, we don't know what to do with that. Because when you look at our passage, David's actions, they're deplorable. They're despicable. And there's no way that you can't weasel out of it. It's just there right in front of you. It's, it's awful. And it's there for all of us to read. And yet I think uh, as you see what's happening in our passage this morning. As we work through this, you're going to see in the end, as we consider the remaining power of sin, this morning the remaining power of a sin like lust, even in the life of a believer, we're going to see that rather than asking the question on all of our minds, which is, how could David do such a thing? If Golding's view and the Bible's view of the human heart is right, the question we should be asking ourselves is, what makes me believe that under the right circumstances, I couldn't do the exact same thing? Why would I believe that? So as we dig into this this morning, I want to just show you just two things this morning from our passage. I want to show you the seductive power of lust and the superior power of grace. 
The seductive power of lust and the superior power of grace. So if you've closed your Bibles, open them up again, please, to 2 Samuel 11. I want you to follow along with me as we go through this. See what God has to say to us this morning. Let's look, first of all, at the seductive power of lust. The seductive power of lust. Now, before I can even get going, you may already have two questions in your mind. I'm going to see if I'm, I'm right in assuming what they are. The first would be, why, why would I call this a seductive power of lust and not adultery? I mean, we talked about David's adultery. Why would I talk about the seductive power of lust? Okay, well, the thinking behind that is very simple. Uh, even though our true family portrait is, it's filled with misfits and outlaws and all kinds of things, we, we don't often like to be reminded of that. And so uh, we can have this tendency, maybe if we're part of, a, I would like to believe, the large uh, uh, group, majority of people who, who have been sexually faithful to our spouses, when we hear about something like this that David's done, we want to distance ourselves from him a little bit. We want to just say, okay, new information has come to light. I just want to put you over there right now and keep in my camp over here. And so we, we almost want to maybe take a Sunday off, check out for a bit and just say, okay, well, we're talking about adultery. We're talking about people who've done that. Okay, so this isn't about me this morning, and I, and I don't want you to do that. Because here's the problem. In the New Testament, uh, uh, Jesus, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, he's going to want to call each and every one of us to, hey, hey, stop putting on your coat and come on back over and sit down in the pew with David. Uh, because Jesus, if you remember in his Sermon on the Mount, says this. He says basically the bare external law-keeping of the seventh commandment is not exactly going to be all that God cares about. Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ouch. So you know what that means? If you look back at verse 2 of our passage here, chapter 11 and verse 2, see here, this is where David looks down on Bathsheba, uh, uh, taking her bath, he's looking at her, he sees that she's beautiful, he's sending messengers to find out about her. Do you know what that means? That means before David ever took a step off that roof to call Bathsheba to himself, before he ever laid a finger on her, David was already guilty of committing adultery with her in his heart. He was already guilty. Now, okay, would it have been better for David if he had confessed that sin to God and then gone to bed? Yeah, absolutely it would have. But we, we can't fall into the trap of believing that God's only concerned about our external actions and he's not also concerned about the state of our heart. Jesus pounded on the Pharisees again and again about that kind of thinking in the New Testament. Saying, yeah, you, you look great on the outside, but inside you are wicked and filthy. And here's the problem. Sin is always first a matter of the heart before it's ever a problem with the hands. It's always a problem with our heart first before it's ever a problem with our hands. And what that also means, as I'm wanting to broaden it this morning, is because uh, while adultery is a grave sin, yes, it's only one example. It's one example of the devastating effects that are, that are many that can come as a result of unrestrained, uh, undisciplined, unchecked lust in the heart. There's many examples of how that looks when it plays out in our hearts. Just think of it this way. Lust is to adultery what, what anger is to murder. Okay? And, and lust is something that, that grows roots and thrives in the fertile soil of the imagination, of our fantasy. 
And so that means that the sin of lust is actually a sin of the heart and not of the hands. And it means because it's grown and thrives in the imagination, lust is not, I'm sorry to disappoint you this morning, lust is not only every man's battle, it's every heart's battle. It affects us differently perhaps, but it affects all of us. And so there's something to say in this message for all of us this morning, which is why we're talking about the seductive power of lust and not adultery. Second question I think it's a great question to ask. Didn't David have like something like eight wives and a, and a harem of women? Who cares if he sleeps with one more woman? I mean, is what we really saying? That's, that's the problem? It's a great question. Great question. Why, why would we talk about marital faithfulness from a guy who's got eight wives and a, and a harem of concubines? What, what, what's the point there? Well, here's the thing. I, I don't have time to deal with every part of that this morning, but... All I would want to do is just say, look at the lengths to which David went to try to cover up what he did. And you'll know, first of all, that David himself knew there was something different. There was something different about what he did with Bathsheba. And he knew all of his kingdom would know that there was something different about it as well, which is why he tried to cover it up. So it's not the same thing. Already we know that. David was the sovereign ruler of God's covenant people. And as such, he was bound to uphold the Mosaic law which he and everyone would have also known, meant that what he did with Bathsheba was forbidden and was worthy of death. He knew that. And beyond that, if you read the book of Psalms, if you read that a lot, you'll know David wasn't just bound. He wasn't just doing his duty and upholding the law. He loved the law. He loved it. He meditated on it. He he thought it was true and perfect. So even David's actions himself tell us there is something different about what's going on here. It's not just David sleeping with another woman. There's something different going on. And adultery is something different than what he was doing in his own life. So keeping those two things in mind, I hope that's enough that we can move ahead here and looking at just exploring it, how it is that a man who defeated giants, uh, kings, and kingdoms could be brought down by watching a woman have a bath on a roof. How is that possible? First thing I want us to say is let's not fool ourselves into believing that when David comes across across Bathsheba bathing on the roof, this is not the first time David's ever had a lustful thought. Okay, It's not as though this just caught him off guard and he was like, whoa, I've never experienced this before. Uh, I don't know know how to handle this. No, okay, I think we've just said David had eight wives and a harem of women. I think we could say his virility is quite intact, even if we'd want to say he's perhaps overindulged it. But I, don't, I think we see the key to David succumbing, giving in to the seductive power of lust, when we read back in our passage in verse 1. Look there with me. This is where we see the beginnings of the problem. Look at verse 1. There we read, In the spring, the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now that last sentence in particular is meant to to stand out to us. It's meant the author is meaning to wave a little flag there and say, hey, there's something going on here, something standing out here. It's the spring. It's the time uh, environmentally where the ground is more favorable to go out and do battle, and yet it's far enough away from harvest that it's not going to affect that. It's the time when kings go to war, or at least it's supposed to be. But even beyond that, even beyond David just hanging back to chill while he sends out the armies, that in itself isn't even the only indicator there's something wrong here. 
If you know David's life, even if you grew up in Sunday school and heard the stories, you know much of David's life, even before he was uh, anointed by Samuel to be the next king as a young boy. David is a warrior by nature. That's who he is. He's a fighter. I mean, he was defeating lions and bears, attacking his sheep long before he was ever fighting giants and kings. So this should stand out to us in the same way that we might say this coming April, it's the spring and the master's weekend is upon us. Men are heading out onto the links, but Tiger Woods stayed back in a spa and had a scalp massage and a paraffin dip. That would stand out to us. We'd be like, wait, wait, what's going on there? Why is, he, why is he here and not there? It's going against his nature of who he is. It's meant to stand out to us like that. And while it's not explicit in the text, I'll grant you that I think what the author here is trying to do is to draw a direct parallel for us between David's battling of physical enemies and his ability to battle sin in his heart. I think he's trying to draw a specific parallel there between foes that are attacking him from the outside, triumphing over foes like lust and bitterness and anger in his own hearts attacking from within. Because if you look at the battles, the victories that David had all through his life, he, he actually, uh, before he became king and settles into the palace, much of his life we hear about before that, all the battles, you see David as this deeply committed man of God. He's, he's displaying a moral prowess that would put most of us to shame. He is a man after God's own heart, and nobody doubts it when David is a fighting man. But now... Now that he's passed all the big struggles in his life, David, he, it's like he's let, his, he's let his guard down. He stopped moving forward. He stopped his, his desperate clinging to God. And now all of a sudden, it's now when the seductive power of lust gets in and is able to grab hold of him. It's almost like uh, those of you who, who know this from experience, when you're in an intensely busy time at work or school, let's say, and you're pounding away and somehow your, your immune system keeps up with you, but then the second you get a break or you go on vacation, you get sick. It's like your body knows, okay, I'm allowed to take a break now, and now it gets sick. I think that's exactly what we're seeing displayed here in David's life. So it's not at all as though David has never encountered a lustful thought before. I think the real problem, he simply just allowed himself to believe, okay, I can take a rest now. I've arrived. I'm here in the palace. I'm living the palace life now. And he hasn't actually arrived yet. He's no longer pressing into the, the deep and, and desperate dependence he had on God when he was constantly on the run from King Saul who was trying to kill him. And now he's resting. And I think that now that David has let his guard down, the viper of lust has bitten him. And if you look at our passage now, you see how quickly that venom fills his entire body. Look at verse 3. David is told to his face. There's no mystery here. He's told to his face, that woman you want me to check out, she's someone's wife. She's married, not just to anybody, she's married to one of your mighty men fighting in your army. And David is not restrained by that. He still continues to pursue you know what, when it comes to cases of adultery, I know we always want to say, yeah, it takes two to tango. Okay, and that's right. That's true. And yet I think we've got to also look at, in the case of Bathsheba, there's a, there's a vast power differential going on right now. Okay, we're talking about an ancient Near Eastern context where women are seen, I think we could say, through a primarily a utilitarian lens. And it's no small thing to refuse the request of a king. 
So I don't know all the particulars, but Bathsheba is, is, we don't know all of the conflict that's going on in her heart right now as she's brought into the king's palace. We know that David is already giving in and going through the motions of now without following through on what the consequences will be. Look at verse 5. After this has all taken place, David hears those fateful words, I'm pregnant, and he knows he can't conceal his sin anymore. And within a verse, verse 6, already there's a plan in place. Bring Uriah, bring her husband here so he can sleep with her and I can cover up what I've done. But oops, look at verse 9 now. Uriah is a true and faithful soldier of God. He's displaying right in David's face, I think, what must have been a blinding portrait of the warrior that he used to be, the faithful warrior he used to be. And when David can't even get a drunken Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife, he sends Uriah back to the field holding his death warrant in his hand, murdering his own friend and warrior by royal decree. And you can see just how deep the venom's gone, just how checked out David is, and how lulled to sleep his conscience is, actually. When you look at verse 25, he, he hears the words that uh, Uriah is dead from the commander of the army. Joab sends this message back, and look at David's reply. Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you, don't let this displease you. You know what, the sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab, and it just, it beggars belief to just see David, this man of God, with this calloused, feigned concern for Uriah. God's, this is God's anointed shepherd boy turned king. Look what he's become. And yet we see in verse 26, look down here now, while David speaks words of comfort to Joab, telling him not to let this displease him, God has seen all of what David has done. And it has greatly displeased him. And I think at the most basic level, the very first thing this passage is intending to show us is that just like I said last week, the family of God has one respectable member in it. It's got one good apple, and that's Jesus. Okay? That's, that's the only one there is. Okay? David is a man under the curse of sin, just like every other human being in all of history. And even in spite of all his great acts of heroism and faith, all David can do for us is still point ahead to the need of a true and better king for God's people. Even as great as he is. Second thing to see is that sin is not a one-time uh, foe that we defeat and then we take a rest. It's not a one-time thing. Okay? There's good reason that Hebrews 4 talks about when we finally go to heaven, when we finally are in God's presence, that's called entering into our rest. Or why Paul would tell Christians in Ephesians 6, who are Christians who know God's power and defeat over sin, telling them to put on the armor of God. Or why James would tell us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Continue. It's an active voice that he used there. Continue to resist the devil and he will flee from you. And we're talking about lust here specifically, but whatever the sin, Satan would love nothing better for than you to believe, hey, listen, I just have to finish one battle. I just have to get through one season and then I can buy my tickets to Disneyland and check out. No. He would love nothing better for than you to believe that. The hymn writer M. Babcock said it so well in his hymn, This is My Father's World. Listen. He says, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. 
This is my Father's word. Listen, the battle is not done. It's not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied when earth and heaven be one. Okay, so that's the seductive power of lust, and it touches all of us. Patient and deadly, quietly luring us into his grasp like Ka from the jungle book and lulling our conscience into a deathly sleep before it seeks to devour us fully. But if we just ended there, if we just said, okay, so watch out, don't step in the trap, we would completely miss the gospel hope that's available to all of us who are currently in the coils of lust's grasp or who one day will be. Because here's the truth, while the power of lust may be strong and may even lull the most committed believer in God to do unspeakable things that you never imagined you'd be capable of, our Father in heaven loves his children with a love that is so powerful it is stronger than any power that the sin of lust may have over you. It's stronger than any power. And it's a love that we can't be separated from. You remember what Paul says in Romans 8, there's nothing in all of heaven or earth and all of creation that could separate us from the love of God. You can't get away from it, even if you tried. And although we don't control when or how, I need to say that again, we don't control when or how, God will not allow his sleeping soldiers to remain sleeping forever. He will seek to wake us up. So let's look finally at the superior power of grace. Superior power of grace. If you have kids, or if you ever were a kid, or if you sleep at all, you know that uh, uh, being woken up, we all require to be woken up in different ways. It's not all the same, okay? My youngest daughter, uh, she requires just a gently opening the blinds, a gentle backstroke, and just time to get up, and then you just need to walk away. You can't do anything more, you just need to walk away and leave her. My younger daughter, she needs to be like seriously pounced on like Tigger in order to be woken up. She likes that. She wants that to happen. My wife, you know, it's different. You know, she just needs to leave the caffeine at the altar and just back away (laughs) carefully. And in her time, the, the scent will wake her up. It's different for everyone. But seeing as now I've learned and I know, I know how it is that my Family needs to be woken up in the very same way God also knows perfectly how to wake up his sleeping kids. And we see that in our passage here. If you look ahead now to chapter 12, we see God does this in the life of King David. Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town. And he tells him a story right now. I'm going to summarize it for us. as a, a, a story about a rich man who has all kinds of sheep. A traveler comes through, and rather than taking one of his own sheep to to make a meal, he takes the one sheep of a poor man, a man who who loved his sheep so much that he actually even let it sleep in bed with him and his family. He loved his sheep. This king takes that sheep, kills it, and serves it to his friend instead of taking one of his own. And when David hears this story, he loses it. He says, "Uh, uh, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Well, all of a sudden, he's trapped. Because Nathan says to David in verse 7 of chapter 12, You are that man. It's you. And he says, 
You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord in doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me, you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives and do in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Now at first when we hear that, we almost want to start to say, well, Nathan coming in, he's this prophet of God coming in with the power and strength of God. Why is he telling stories? Why is he wasting time with all that? Why wouldn't he just come in and say, listen, I know you're an adulterer, you're a, you're a liar, you're a murderer. Disgrace sitting on that throne. Why would he waste time with these stories? Is he just afraid to confront David? No. Nathan is simply, he sees that David's conscience has been lulled to sleep. And so he, instead of simply blasting away at the surface, he goes underneath the problem. And he brings about the change that so desperately needs to happen. The point of the storytelling, as one theologian has suggested, is that we see that Nathan is not coming to bring condemnation, but conviction. He's coming to bring conviction. He's not finishing David off. He's trying to wake him up. And the beautiful power of this story is that as David's sense of justice, as, as he feels the injustice of that story in his own heart, it awakes his own conscience to now be able to feel his own guilt and his own shame against what he's done. That's the power of this story in his life. It's as though he's been woken up from a long sleep. And those of you who have read the Lord of the Rings books, or maybe you've seen the films, you remember that scene when uh, King of Rohan, Theoden, he's been put under a curse by the wicked wizard Saruman, and Wormtongue is speaking lies constantly into his ears so that he's become super old, well old beyond his years, and impotent in his ruling of the kingdom. You remember Gandalf the Grey, now Gandalf the Wife, comes into his throne room, takes his staff and removes the curse from him, frees him from his slumber, restores him to his former self. I can't help but wondering if J.R. Tolkien, the author of that book, was thinking of this exact scene in 2 Samuel 12 when he wrote that. Especially when you consider what Gandalf says to this newly woken king who's been absent from battle for years now. He says, I think your fingers would remember their strength better if they grasped your sword. And in light of what we've just been saying about David and his sleeping conscience, we could almost hear that to mean, I think you'd find your strength once again to battle sin if you picked up your sword and started fighting again. Now, just like last week, we see that there's a, this is a true family portrait. There's no riding off into the sunset with a soundtrack playing. There is real consequences for David's actions that he continues to have to deal with, even though God does forgive him. 
The sword will never depart from his house. Uh, uh, his own son, that's who is the person he's speaking of, his own son Absalom seeks to take over his throne and, as predicted, on the roof of David's house, sleeps with all of his wives. And finally, in verse 14, even the life of this child is required because of David's sin. So this is, this is about as real as it gets when it comes to consequences. And yet, as you look at David's awakening from his slumber... We see clearly this awakening is the superior power of grace to bring about David's returning to fighting once again. Seductive power of lust had its day, but it was not permitted to have the final word in David's life. And my promise to you is that that exact same hope is available to any of you today who are in the coils of lust. Lust does not have to speak the final word of who you are. You're not relegated to the trash heap of God's purposes now. And I believe that God will send Nathans into each of our lives as well to, to wake us up from our spiritual slumber that could be anything. It could be a spouse, it could be a friend, it could be a, a, an illness, it could be a healing, it could be this church family, it could even be this sermon you're hearing this morning. God will send Nathans to wake up his sleeping children, not allow us to destroy ourselves. He'll do it in his own time, in his own way, but when he sends them, they are a gift. As hard as it is, and though there may still be consequences, it is a gift to us. And if you think about it, when David's conscience was finally awakened, it was the beginning of his turnaround in his life was when he was finally able to confess his failure. When he was able to say in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord, when he said that, that was the whole turnaround. He was suddenly able to rule effectively now. His relationship with God was restored again. When he was able to put away the facade that he was so desperately trying to hold up for everyone to see and show the true portrait of who he was, that's when God was able to restore him back to his former self. And isn't that ironic? David had tried so hard. He did everything he could to conceal that sin, and yet how many thousands of years later we're still reading about it we're still talking about it. I mean, good grief. One of the most popular covers today is of a Leonard Cohen song, which is speaking directly about David's sin. Do you know this? Faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair. From your lips she drew the hallelujah. 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 I love that song. We're still talking about it. We're singing songs about what David tried so hard to cover up. And yet, you know what? If you've read Psalm 51, you know David beat Leonard Cohen to the punch because he already wrote his own song about his failure. And he was willing to say, it's an, expo it's an exposing and, and being real about my failure. That's where the forgiveness comes in. That's where the reality of God's forgiveness can pour in and restore us back to health. David could say in Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. A repenting heart, O oh God, you will not despise. He said in Psalm 32, when I kept quiet about my sin, when I tried to hide, it rotted my bones. The 
There's power and strength in revealing the true life portrait. Because that's where, A, we demonstrate to each other. We haven't got it all figured out. And we know that we can grow together because we're all in a process, just like we said last week. And also, when we're real about the struggles that we go through, we also point people beyond ourselves to the one who can truly restore us back to health. 